0: just send us an email, use the contact button on our website, retirementunlimited.com, or just give our office a call. Our phone number is 951-684-7011. Each week we discuss life's hard financial questions. And this week we're going to discuss, initially, we're going to discuss the fiduciary standard. It's It's a question that comes up a lot. And uh, it's been advertised quite a bit. And the question is, are we fiduciaries? And my, my answer would be, yes, we're fiduciaries. Because first of all, because of our designation, we're certified financial planners. But there's a, there's a lot of information to be known about a fiduciary and, and the independence of that, right?
1: Yeah. And this industry is, is changed, but it's also right. unique to this. So I, I think for the, the context and for everyone out there, you know, when you go and see a wealth advisor, a financial planner, an investment advisor, any of those, you're going to pay for services, and the question being, how do they get paid? What is their standard to care for you? Are they, you know, a salesman who's just there, like a used car salesman, just there to get a sale? Are they someone who comes alongside you, like a, a doctor or a dentist? They're there to take care of you. Um, uh, you know, w- what is the standard that they're held to? And this has changed over time. You know, it used to be that you know someone who was a stockbroker that they're at what it was called a suitability standard to say as long as this investment was generally suitable for someone in your position, that was fine. That was enough. But the industry has shifted a bit to move towards what's called a fiduciary standard to say, not just, is this one investment not bad for you,
0: but rather, is this is this investment in your is, best is interest? This most appropriate investment. For yeah. you. Now you came over, uh, you're an attorney, but you worked with a large law firm in Riverside for a number of years. And the conversation that, that we had, Jeremiah, was that you looked at the model that we had at Tricord Advisors and felt comfortable with it because there was clear independence. In other words, the client really was first yeah. in in all of our all of all of our engagements.
1: Yeah, that's a big deal for me, especially my background as attorney, but I think a big deal for the industry. I think it's the right way to represent clients. I mean, I, I say right, you know, it's my opinion on that. But you know, there's a lot of people who do it differently. So some of the things that whenever you engage with a financial advisor, you know, you're going to be uh, it's a great question to ask how they get paid. We welcome that question from people right. anyone that I meet with. like In fact, some that don't, I ask it for them. Like right. We need to talk about how this compensation works so they understand. You know, th- there's some advisors out there that they seem like an independent company, but really they're associated with an insurance company. These mm-hmm. insurance companies have um, you know, lots of money. They offer products, um, annuities, you know, of course, life insurance and things like that. They also help facilitate mutual funds. And you could be working with an, with an advisor that gets a commission structure um, based on what they sell to you. And that commission structure could be different depending if they go outside of their um, parent organization, you know, if they just mm-hmm. go out in the marketplace and find you a good product, or if they steer you towards a product that's sold by their parent organization. And in the fiduciary standard, I, I have issues with, with some of that. And, you know, if the client is aware of that and they know, great. From, from my background, like you said, as an attorney, it's not just the fiduciary standard that an attorney is held to is not just doing everything in their best interest, but even to your own detriment, mm-hmm. you know, that, that would be have to be full disclosure of any sort of fee arrangements.
0: And that and that's where I, I kind of draw the line because oftentimes we are giving these forms, you know, our compliance mm. people, our attorneys, you know, the people that give us the regulatory standard and they're trying to protect us. but They're saying, well, you have to have the client sign this or initial this part or whatever. And oftentimes the client just assigns and initials and such as that. But it's multiple pages of information, yeah. and they're trusting us that the disclosure and the information there is not, they're not signing something that's going to harm them. Uh, I feel confident in telling them that this is pretty standard in procedures, and I kind of give them an outline of it. But still in our industry, we hand a prospective client or a client, you know, several pages of documentation, and they by and large sign it, but it's, it's something that happens it's like going way back when I first started in the business, we would have to get a prospectus receipt. Mm. And it was kind of a joke because you would you'd give the client a prospectus on a mutual fund or an investment, and they would sign off that they had received this receipt. And that, that basically exonerated any uh, responsibility to me as an advisor mm. at that stage, because the client was saying, I read the prospectus, I understand the risks, and this is appropriate and suitable for me. And that was the difference between suitability yeah. and the other standards that yeah. we hold to now.
1: And so whenever someone's you know looking for this type of advice, I, I think it's so important to ask, you know, and ask these questions. I mean, they're not offensive or right. any sort of questions you need to shy away from. You should absolutely ask them, you know, what sort of standard they're held to. Help help them help have them, you know, explain to you what kind of things they can provide to you and what things they can't, and what that standard is, and also how they get paid. Uh, in our in, in this industry of financial advice. There's there's a few different ways, but often it's either commission based, meaning if they sell you a mutual fund or they sell you um, an annuity, they get a lump sum usually uh, commission or one that has a, a tail over right. many years. So if they sell you product A or product B, what they're getting paid on it is different. So that's kind of the commission base. The other one is the fee only base, which says you know it, it, there's no commissions, there's no hidden fees, it's only the fee that you pay me for my advice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, similar example, being an attorney is similar to that in the sense that as an attorney, you get an hourly fee, an hourly rate, and whether. The, CPA the, or something. Yeah. Like whether that. the transaction that we were working on went through, whether mm-hmm. they won a case or lost a case, it, what, what the attorney get was just the fees. And you know, no one ever likes attorney's fees, but I've had a number of clients that come back and say, wow, that advice you gave me, you know, it saved me a million dollars in taxes in this transaction wow, that's great. <laughs> and we would laugh at them and say, yep, that's great. We don't participate that like, right. you, you know, I'll laugh at them, laugh with them, but you know, we, we participate, we don't participate in the savings they had. We simply get our regular fees. And, and on, on that structure, you, you know what you're paying to the advisor and you know, it's, it's, it's viewable and it, it's, you can look at it each year and say, is this worth it? You know, right. just, whereas on the commission base, you may not see that. And then the third way is, is they call it fee-based, meaning it's, it's a, it's a melding of the two. Right. Some
0: of it is based
1: off of just paying for advice and some of it is based on some commissions. Uh, but
0: I- and, this, and this is where I struggle. And, and you and I have had a lot of conversation in the office about this over the last couple of years is that when it comes to insurance product, products, in particular, life insurance and long-term care, and in some cases annuities, although less, less of an issue there, is finding the right product for the client, finding the right specific need without entering into the commission structure. Mm. And it's hard to find. It's hard to find it because the insurance industry has been very um, resistant in providing their services on a fee base or on an advisory source platform. More and more are doing it now, but still, it's very difficult to find. And I wrestle with, I go through all of this, and if this is the right product, let's say, for example, long-term care, this is the right product for you, the right insurance, and yet there's a commission attached to it. Mm-hmm. Our fiduciary standard says that we're not supposed to take commission, um, but it's awkward, I guess, yeah. is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, to say this is the best product. So you know, there's some clients we even have to refer them out to say, this is right. what you need to get. We actually can't sell it to you because it would pay us a commission. So you need to go here. You know, we're referring, get it connected. But I like the role of being in a position to say, I, I am alongside our client and we are trying to do everything in their best interest. And, and move them forward, whatever that may be. We have the universe of, of options of investments and things, right. but you're right. There's, there's certain insurance specifically, but also price some annuities that it's hard to find a good, the, the best product for them mm-hmm. that doesn't come with some sort of a commission. And I think in the coming years, that will be less and less. You know, it's yeah, already minimized.
0: Yeah. Rate. I think that uh, companies are becoming much more aware and they're becoming uh, more sensitive to the fee structure of registered investment advisors and companies like ourselves and providing it. I think that uh, I think what I want to get across in this this segment is that to our listening audience and the discussion that we have internally within our office all the time is what is the best thing for the client? At the end of the day, that's what we're trying to accomplish. And sometimes it's really a wrestle to find the right solution for the client without having any other transaction costs, having a pure solution. And they pay us a fee to oversee that for them. But we don't get any other compensation okay. for it, and I
1: think we've worked hard to get ourselves in this position. I, I imagine there's a lot of um, advisors with with other companies, some of the big banks, some of the other big companies that do financial planning, that probably struggle with this of knowing right. they want to provide this great service to their clients, but they're incentivized to sell certain products because they personally make more money, right? Um, and, and having to to battle that, so we've tried to remove that battle from ourselves by being independent, that we can provide any product from any financial institution. Um, and we're not getting commissions on that. We're doing it on a
0: fee basis. And we get no other incentives. I mean, yeah. we're talking like, for example, trips to wherever uh, there's other incentives. Sometimes the companies will yeah, kind right. of dangle that out in front of you and saying, well, if you do this, if you do so much volume, then you'll get this or other companies will provide that we're independent, but we kind of, we want you to sell a certain amount of our product. I mean, yeah. we've seen where banks have taken over investment houses where now the investment advisors have to offer bank products and things mm-hmm. like that. And that's yeah. just, it's out of the, it's out of the realm of being appropriate. I yeah.
1: Well even yeah. if you're connected with a bank, you know, having mortgages and refinances right. and on one side, you're offering a really great resource to your customers. Cause you're, you're, you're right there with that resource on the flip side, you're potentially steering them towards your own bank, which may mm-hmm. get you some back. in. I think it's also good to mention that the downsides of fee only compensation, you know, a lot of us and a lot of other, Included in a lot of other companies is as your assets grow you know your fees will grow you know and, and part of that is very reasonable because you're having more services. Other parts of that that there's usually fee breaks at a certain point you know if you have you know over a million dollars with an investment advisor, their fees generally should be and I would expect them to be slightly different than if you only had you know, 500,000. Yeah. Or even, even starting out lower. Yeah. And so as, as you move, you know, up this investment, you would get a lower percentage of what your fee is, but still fair for the services being provided. So I think that it's important for everyone to know, you know, and and ask any advisor you have, you know, how, how do you get paid? What is the standard of care that you have for me? And, and just be really aware of those things and signing a document usually isn't enough. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And again, we encourage clients to ask questions. And if they don't ask the questions, we will probably ask them, ask the question for them so that they know exactly what the answer is. Hey, stay tuned for our next section. We're going to talk about the turbulent times we've been going through and how do you deal with it? 8371. Or visit me, Randy Barkley, at retirementunlimited.com. Advisory services offered through Tricord Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor, clearing through TD Ameritrade member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB. AM590, the answer. Welcome back. This is a section of the program. We want to talk about the volatility in the marketplace right now. And I, you know the key question that we we wrestle with in here is how do you obtain the right kind of holdings and yet reduce the volatility. No, nobody wants to see their portfolio go down, but at the same point in time, we also know that historically you have to endure some corrections within the marketplace. The question is how much, I guess. Yeah, and volatility, for say, that's the up
1: and downs, that's the roller coaster feeling right. of of your portfolio. Someone who had a, a low volatility would feel just like a re- regular, steady uphill climb. Someone who had high volatility would feel one week they're up, one week they're down, one week they're up. And even though at the end of, say, ten years, the two of them might have gotten to the same place, one was much more volatile. Um, so you're know, thinking kind of volatility. There's there's ways to build portfolios to, to get away from it. So, example, if you had one stock, say you just own Netflix, then you are subject to Netflix. Whatever oh Netflix does, it goes up. What, it goes down. What an incredible roller coaster that would that, be. Yeah, it's been a huge roller coaster. And you know, when when Netflix comes out with their earnings you're a subject to whatever the stock does. So then a little bit of diversifying and reducing your volatility is maybe you own all of the streaming adv- providers, you know, Hulu and Disney, you, you own all those. And now if something happens to Netflix, well, your portfolio still dips, but not as much because you mm-hmm. still have these other stable pieces. So that's like the first layer. And then the next
0: layer is, well, not just streaming platforms, but so, also so, hold something else. You know, We've talked about um, some of the, the issues with index funds. A lot of people use exchange-traded funds, and in some cases, we do it too, particularly for smaller investors. But as the client's uh, portfolio continues to grow, we want to go to more individual holdings. And the question is, how many stocks, minimally, should you have, and can that reduce the volatility and succeed in getting the overall gain in your account that you desire? That's right.
1: Yeah, and it it used to be in about 2000, they kind of did some research on this, and it took 50 stocks to get a diversified portfolio. You had yeah. to have at least 50 different stocks to, to bring down the volatility from just a, you know, specific volatility related to each stock. It became just the regular mm-hmm. market volatility. If you go back to the 1980s, it was only 15 stocks that you needed. So right. you think about the size of your portfolio, it's, it's growing. So first you had 15, in 2000 you had 50. Today, you know, they did a similar study. You still need 50 stocks, but the biggest difference is the total volatility you're able to get down to is significantly higher. Right. So. There's another gauge of volatility called the VIX. Um, it's a volatility index. And it historically has been around 10 to 12 is kind of their, their, the number of where they're at. Well, they've been 25 and 30 in recent months. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and
0: it's just a significantly more volatile time. Yeah, anything above 30 historically is very, very high. And I don't want to go into the details uh, with our audience about how that's calculated. But anything above 30 on the VIX is, is, is it shows a lot of volatility. But I think the one asset class that has been beaten up, and that is bonds. Mm-hmm. And um, in our portfolios, we tried to shorten the durations, and yet still keep the quality of the bond. And it really depends upon whether it's a retirement account or a non-retirement account. But bonds have come under pressure because interest rates are rising. Yeah. So as you go through that
1: diversifying your portfolio, you know, if you say you have fifty stocks, we well, say that's not enough. You didn't take out enough volatility. I want more volatility taken out. So then they start looking to bonds and other things like that. So having a, a mix of stocks and bonds is the historic way to balance out your um, volatility and kind of diversify across asset classes. And in, in recent years, bonds have uh, not done what people hoped they would do. They hoped right. they would be stable. They hoped they would move um, non-correlated
0: yeah, to and the, the rate of return on bonds has been, has been miserably low for the last uh, several years. And now with a rising interest rate market, you know, rising inflation and rising interest rates is it's destructive to bond portfolios. Mm. It really is and we've seen that in the last quarter. But at the same point in time, you don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater because they still do provide interest. They provide that and they build that back in the portfolio. So therefore, how you how you minimize the volatility within the bond portfolio is primarily through shortening durations. In some cases, you can do that uh, more effectively than others. But to just say we're going to be out of bonds completely uh, doesn't doesn't really make a lot of sense for most clients, because in the long run, you know, and on the long run, and the long run is more than a week. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking years. Bonds will provide stability within the portfolio. And if you're just saying, I I don't like bonds and just get rid of them. I think you're, you're making a foolish error on on you. Well, especially right now, Uh, you know, bonds in 2022. So just this
1: year, they're down nearly 10%. And that is a massive amount. That's
0: based on duration of the bonds and the quality of the bond too.
1: It's different depending on how you might, um, you could have different bond holdings that do different things. However, um, bonds in general are down and they've been kind of hammered. So the question being, you know, do you just get rid of them or to say, well, they've hit bottom, you know, they've hit where they're going to be. And with our, you know, inflation concerns and our falling interest rates, you know, interest rates have bottomed to some extent. You know, and we're not calling a bottom here, but but the idea of saying that they for the last decade we've had interest rates continually coming down, down and down, and, and, and now they're remember, going back up.
0: Yeah, remember, bonds are different than stocks. Stocks are it's it's performance on each each month or each period. Where bonds, there's a continual flow of interest that comes out of the bond portfolio. And over time, bonds will kind of self heal, and you don't want to give up the interest that is coming into your portfolio from bonds. Again, the volatility sometimes is hard to um, tolerate. Yeah. But over the long haul, bonds provide that stability, and they they do um, provide that constant interest, which is a good good source of yeah, income that, down the road. Yeah, that
1: great income. But yeah, for a lot of people that we use bonds historically, it'd be for a more stable portfolio that says you know, someone who's, say, in retirement and going to be living off this uh, portfolio. You know, bonds push out on a regular basis, you know, income, which right. can be really great for the person holding them. Um, but th- the question being, will we ever get back to, you know, the levels of volatility we had previously? Yet? Who knows, you know, if we will. But in the near future, we won't. You know, we're we're in a world where things are Yeah, there's, are more
0: there's clearly volatile. an adjustment in the marketplace. Nobody thought that inflation would be uh, this engaged. Then you had the, the COVID thing in... Um, you know, in China, got you know, they started having more issues with COVID. But then you couple that with what's going on with uh, Russia and Ukraine. It's kind of interesting how Russia and Ukraine, the whole issue there is becoming less of a headline and more of a side issue. Uh, hopefully it'll, it'll dissipate. I'd love to see Russia go away, but I, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Um, so, again, the selection of assets, going back to our initial comment, how many stocks and what kind of stocks is really important to be able to build a portfolio that's going to have gain for the long haul. Mm -hmm. Going back to 2000, um, we saw the internet bubble in 1999, 2000. We saw the internet bubble and I was in the business at that time. And we saw a lot of these internet stocks just just implode. Mm. Um, And if your portfolio was made up primarily of these, these internet stocks that were high flyers, your portfolio got just got decimated because of what was going on. But again, if you had good quality stocks of of companies, which which is where we're leaning into right now, um, they will last. They will be here tomorrow. And we we are definitely a big believer in American based companies, you know, manufacturers, banks, energy companies, those, and more importantly, they continue to pay dividends and they can pass inflation on to their customers, which makes their stocks more stable mm. in times like this. You don't have to end up with your portfolio just being decimated, I guess is yeah. what I'm
1: saying. Yeah, that's right. And for a lot of this, I guess to put some context, you know, to, to have a loss of 10% or 20% feels like decimated, <laughs> you know, but it's not, we're not talking about going to zero here. We're not talking about gambling or speculation. Right. These are real portfolios that um, you know, have hard times. And they have good times. But another aspect that's unique now, as well is we have some really large players in our industry that um, they call them the the FANG stocks, you know, these Facebook and and Apple or Alphabet's the parent company. But some of these great companies are so large that they impact um, the the entire market when they go up Well, again,
0: in an index fund or a mutual fund, oftentimes they make up a lot bigger percentage of the total uh, volume uh, within that particular fund. It's it's disproportionate.
1: Yeah, and one of the things we're talking about, like Microsoft is a pretty solid company that a lot of people like, but its share price has been coming down and down and down. And part of it is because Microsoft is included in all of these indexes. Right. And so as people say, oh no, the sky is falling and they exit the index, they're also selling a little bit of Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's always positions where people try and do what's called arbitration to say if I can or arbitrage arbitration. They have arbitrage to say, well, if it's if the same assets going down here, I'm going to buy it over here for a different price. So the prices balance out, but there's a lot of stocks I feel that are being abuse and suffering
0: higher volatility. And like going back to the bonds, some of the bonds are just being sold off and they're selling the good bonds along with the bad bonds. Mm. And so it's affecting the overall um, volume or vo- you know, the pricing of things. Yeah. Same thing going back to your illustration on Microsoft. It's not a company that we would say is a bad company, but it's being sold because the market, they have a tendency to sell everything. So yeah. they include that within their sale down. So, yeah. Anyway. So
1: the, the volatility in this market, I don't know that it's, going to fade. I don't know that it's uh, going to go away. And I think part of it is there's so many indexes that hold so many so many funds. When someone sells, they, they're probably selling across the market, which is going to sell the good, the bad and the ugly yeah. um, and
0: make everything have more volatility. So the inflection here is that we want to make sure that you are aware that management through times of turbulence is possible. Don't panic and, and make sure your assets are solid assets that will be around tomorrow. Uh, if you'd like to have a topic or if you'd like to discuss like uh, Jeremiah, I discuss anything that uh, you'd like to hear on the radio, uh, send us an email. Use the contact button on our website, retirementunlimited.com, or just give our office a call at 951-684-7011. Until next week, folks, may you grow in wisdom and knowledge. Thank you for listening.